0: Well, good morning again, and we are now in week four of five in our Talking point series. So the point of this series, we're looking at common points of conversation that will come up as we get to know unbelievers and non-Christians around us in our lives, and our base verse uh, for this series is 1 Peter 3.15, which tells us, "...but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy." Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter makes it very clear that we should be prepared to talk about our faith with non-Christians, but the way in which we do that is also important. We do it with gentleness. We do it with respect. So the whole point of this series is we're talking about all these different things that that may come up in conversations, but how are we talking about them? What are we going to say when we're engaging in good and healthy dialogue with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our longtime friends, with our family members who don't know Christ? So today we will be discussing how we can talk with someone about what it means to even be a Christian and address what misconceptions that they may have. So let's pray before we dig into this today and ask the Lord to help us understand this whole truth of his as we search the scriptures today. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for allowing us to be here to worship you. May you help us. Lord, would you help us and open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of what salvation really is what it means to to be a follower of you, what it means and how we should discuss this with others. So Lord, would you give us wisdom through your Holy Spirit and speak to our hearts and our minds and transform the way we even think and the way we behave and the way we speak with others as we dwell on your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we're having these conversations with non-Christians like we've been talking about, You know, there's different ways that points of conversation may may come up, and so one way or one phrase you may hear someone say is, well, you know, I think being a Christian means dot, 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 right? So there's endless options of how they could finish that sentence. So maybe you'll hear someone say, well, you know, I think being a Christian means you have to go to church and follow all the rules, Right, you've, Maybe you've heard that before from someone you know. Maybe that's a common saying out there in today's world. I think being a Christian maybe you know, means that your parents were Christian, so that's, that's why you're a Christian is because you were raised that way. Your parents were Christian. Maybe you'll hear someone say, well, I just think being a Christian means you believe in God. Or I think being a Christian means that you, know, you were baptized when you were a baby. Or I think being a Christian means you repeated a prayer when someone told you that's what you needed to do to not go to hell. And so that's what, that's, you're like, well, I don't want to go to hell. So sure, let me repeat this prayer. You see, when we're talking with a friend who is not a Christian and the topic of what it means to be a Christian comes up, what are they going to say? What are you going to say? See, there's probably endless options, right? There's all these things that people, these ideas, these misconceptions about what people think it might mean to actually become a Christian or be a Christian. So what does it mean? What does it really mean to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? And how can we communicate that in a way that non-Christians can understand by not overwhelming them with theological words, by not overwhelming them with confusion, but how can we clearly communicate to the people in our lives who don't know Jesus of what it really means to even be a follower of Jesus. So we're going to look at this today chronologically in really two phases, the two phases in the order that they happen. So we're going to talk about what it means to become a Christian first, and then what it means to be a Christian. In other words, to live the Christian life. So here's some points. Here's some points we, we may make As we talk about this, and I want to be clear, this is not exhaustive, right? This is not the complete list. This is just some suggestions and helpful resource to steer us in the right direction as we look at a variety of scriptures that point us to this good and healthy dialogue. And for those of you who are visiting, by the way, um, we're starting a new series in the in a couple of weeks. We're going to be going through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I know what you're thinking, but it's way more exciting than you think, okay? Uh, <laughs> but I just want to be clear um, that we normally preach through books of the Bible. This is a special topical series, but it's an important one. So, so first of all today, uh, what does it mean? What does it mean to even become a Christian? All right. Well, first of all, becoming a Christian is not about getting your act together. Becoming a Christian is not about you just getting all your ducks in a row and cleaning up yourself so that you then can come to God. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, we see uh, just a, an, an encounter that Jesus had with a man. And, and it, this, just look at what he says. "Behold, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this man is coming to Jesus with the wrong question this man thought there was something he had to do to get eternal life, right? So this, I believe, is the fundamental misconception about what it means to be or become a Christian in our world today. Most people think that becoming a Christian means getting your act together, cleaning yourself up, doing religious things. In other words, You have to prove yourself, prove you are worthy of God's acceptance and his approval of his salvation. You see, I think this mindset, this performance-driven mindset where we have to perform to attain things is, is deeply rooted in us probably more than we realize. We all have a desire to prove ourselves through performance of some kind so that we can earn rewards and, and see how awesome we really are. Now, my wife and I, we, uh, Christy, we are uh, members of the Starbucks Rewards Program, okay? So it's very exclusive. Uh, and let me just tell you how that, now I'm way more... Uh, obsessed with this than her, so I don't want to throw her her under the bus here. This is all my fault. Um, But So here's what you do. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? So you earn stars for every dollar you spend or whatever, and when you get 200 stars, you get a free drink, right? Now, that's a pretty good deal, sort of, if you think about it, because the drinks at Starbucks are like $10, right? But the problem is, and what I can't seem to get my head around, is that Andrew, you're spending $200 to get one free drink. What are you, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing, right? But you know what, though? There's something about earning those stars and just seeing on my Starbucks app when I get this notification that I got a free drink, right? It just kind of makes me feel good. Unfortunately, I think most non-Christians and many so-called Christians think that becoming a Christian is all about earning this reward. And so if we can just accumulate stars, if we can accumulate the check boxes, right, and just list off all the good things that we need to do and the person we need to be, that in the end, God will give us the reward that we have earned ourselves and we'll feel good about it. It's really genius if you think about it. Starbucks, I mean. They have tapped into something in the human heart that we all struggle with. This desire to feel like we have accomplished something through our own effort. You see, becoming a Christian is not about your performance at all. It's not about getting your act together. It's not about quitting some bad habits. And then hoping that because you quit some bad habits and you started coming to church, that God will see that and say, you know, he's done a good job. I think I'm going to let him in. Dane Ortland, author of the book Gentle and Lowly, says, It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but when we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. We never will. (laughs) In other words, your goodness will never be good enough. Your goodness will never be good enough for a perfect and holy God. David Platt in his book, Radical, uses an illustration that I've used several times and I think it's really helpful. Imagine, imagine that God is at the top of a mountain. And so all religions essentially teach The same thing, that we have to climb the mountain to get to God. He's up there. And so we've got to pull ourselves together. We've got to work really hard. We've got to gather all the right tools and the resources and perform the right way and do the right things and say the right things and hang around the right people to climb this mountain. And if we can somehow get to the top, then God will know us and he'll love us and he'll welcome us into his eternity forever. Every religion essentially teaches that message in different forms except Christianity. You see, Christianity teaches us that we cannot climb the mountain. There is nothing you can do to even take the first step up the first stone to climb the pathway up the mountain. We will fall backwards And bust ourselves every single time because we are flawed with human sin. It is a problem innate in us. It is a problem reoccurring in us. It is our number one issue that we do not want to get to God. We want to worship ourselves. But the good news of Christianity is, even though you can't climb the mountain, God came down the mountain to us. That is the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a human. He was fully God and fully man and became one of us so that he could take our place, so that he could do what we could never do, so that he could put us on his back and climb the mountain for us through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection. You see, we can't climb. We cannot get our act together. We never will. So we must admit this. We must know this to truly accept Jesus as our Savior. But that's not the only thing here. The second thing I want us to see is that becoming a Christian not only does it mean you can't get your act together, it means or it is not a means to an end. Becoming a Christian is not a means to an end. We need to be careful when we're talking with other people about what it means to even become a Christian. We need to be careful not to portray christianity to our friends as just a way to kind of help them out you know man you know i if you i think if you came to church you'd really find you know happiness and and your life would be better right chris if we kind of if we and this can be incidental i don't i don't think we mean to do this sometimes but we need to be careful with our words not to make it sound like hey you know you've tried this and you've tried that now try christianity it'll make you a better person Like it's just some kind of life improvement seminar that's going on every week. A better version of yourself. Pastor J.D. Greer wrote a book called Gospel, explaining the gospel of Christianity. He says, true religion is when you serve God to get nothing else but more of God. Many people, he says, use religion as a way of getting something else from God they want. Blessings, rewards, even escape from judgment. Getting religiously active in a church does not necessarily mean you have become a true worshiper of God. You may have simply discovered religion to be a more convenient means to other cherished idols like respect, pride, success, a good family, or prosperity. You know, I think he's right. I think that sometimes... If we're not careful, we can portray in our conversations that Christianity is a means to some other end. Oh, don't you want to be a better person? Don't you want your life to improve? Well, here, try Christianity. Try Jesus. You see, in 2 Kings chapter 17, it documents one of the major events of world history when in the 700s BC, the Assyrian Empire captured and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. But here's what happened. Many Assyrians came to live in Israel and they tried to worship the God of Israel while also worshipping their other false gods. So they were trying to do both at the same time. And look at 2nd Kings 17:41. This is in the NIV translation. It says, "Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols." Man. Is it possible Is it possible that some of us here today, the reason we're here is because we're really worshiping something else under the mask of worshiping God? Are we coming to church to impress other people? And so our real worship, our real idol is respect or having the approval of someone. It's not coming to get God for God. It's coming to God to get someone else to like us. Is the real reason we're here is so that we can feel better about ourselves. So that we just feel good about ourselves and, and we have a little bit better self esteem. And so, God, thanks for helping me. Thanks for helping me achieve this better version of myself. You see, Jesus is not a means to some other end. He is not here to help us become just a better, well-rounded person if we portray Christianity as just a way for somebody to improve themselves. That is not the true gospel. Here's how Jesus described what it means to become one of his followers. Lark read some of this in our worship earlier. Listen, Mark 8, in Mark 8, 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you want to summarize that in just a few words, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the person that we're sharing the gospel with. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about falling on our knees before him and admitting that we can't get our act together and that he's not a means to an end. No, we want him for him because we know that we need him. It's not about seeing how good we can try to be. It's not about getting some other desire fulfilled. Well, then what is it? Becoming a Christian is turning from our sin, and to Jesus. It's turning from chasing those idols, the need to feel approved, the need to feel accepted, the need to feel loved by others. It's from laying that pursuit down and looking and turning to Christ. As we sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It is a change of direction. It's turning from chasing these idols and looking to God to just get God. Because you see how marvelous his grace is. You see how wonderful his forgiveness is. You see how powerful his love is. And you just want him. It's admitting that you can't and never will be good enough. Christianity, becoming a Christian, it's complete surrender to his will and finding joy in Jesus' performance that is credited to your account through the gospel. It's resting in his work so that you don't have to bear that pressure. You know, in John chapter three, Jesus was having a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. Now, let me tell you about Nicodemus, okay? He was probably the most esteemed and well-respected religious leader in Israel in the first century. So you're not talking about this is not just another guy off the street. This is the top dog for religious leaders in Israel in the first century. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to be seen. Now he was a Pharisee. Now here's the thing about Pharisees. Pharisees were these, this religious group leaders, okay, in first century Palestine. They were very confident. They were very confident that they had their act together. They were very confident that they were morally superior than everybody else. They felt that they knew what they were doing, that they had done a good job of checking off all the boxes, and that God loved them because they had earned his love. If Jerusalem had a Starbucks in the first century, Nicodemus would have been president of the rewards club. Trust me. But look what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this, is, this confused Nicodemus at first because he thought that his first birth was Okay. He thought, in other words, that the life he had built over time, over his years, was just fine and dandy. He didn't see any need for this repentance language. He didn't see any need for being born again, this new life. He thought the life he had built was just fine. Then Jesus says, no, you need a new life, Nicodemus. I know that you have done well in many ways, and you are a very well-respected person in the community, but I'm telling you that you need to start over, (laughs) That's the last thing Nicodemus probably thought he would hear that night. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the life he has built is built around him. You see, Nicodemus' greatest sin was his own pride and thinking that he could earn his salvation. But from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he proclaimed that we must all turn from our sin this mindset of earning God's approval of thinking that we've got our act together right this mindset we're turning from that and to him and him alone for salvation in Mark 1 when Jesus came into Galilee he started proclaiming immediately the gospel of God in verse 15 what does he say the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel So from the very first moment of Jesus' ministry, he is automatically coming out the door saying, repent and believe, repent and believe. The word repent means to turn. To turn from this idea that you think you can do it and turn to Jesus and say, I can't, I can't do it. Please, would you be everything I could never be? From the very start, this was the message. That Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection was for us that Jesus died in our place the death we should have died that he's alive <laughs> that the resurrection is real that <laughs> Jesus is alive today just as much as you and I are sitting here right now but to even come to even come to this realization for us that we can't do it and that only he can for us it's going to take some serious humility It's going to take an awakening of our souls that only the Holy Spirit of God can bring. In Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So which one do you think you are? As we're engaging in conversation with non-Christians, Ultimately, we have to lead them to a point or help them at least see that they are sick. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. In other words, if, if people just want to dabble a little bit with Christianity without truly admitting their guilt before God and without turning from their self-reliance, if that's all it is, then we have created some kind of fake version of Christianity that does no good. But, Paul says in Romans ten thirteen, for everyone... Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of an eternal, holy God who cannot allow sin into his kingdom. You see, this calling, this calling out to God, as Romans 1013 tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This calling, it's not a robotic response. It's not a formulated phrasing of words. It's not, it's not this ascent of knowledge either. It's more like a cry of someone who is drowning in the ocean with no help around them in sight. And so you know in that moment that all you can do is cry out to God to please, please send someone to rescue me. That is all you can do. There is nothing you can do. In the middle of the ocean with no boats or life rafts around you, that's all you can do is cry out to your maker and pray for mercy that somehow he would send someone to rescue you. That is the cry of salvation. It is a cry where we finally realize that I'm not just drowning, but without Christ, I am already at the bottom of the ocean dead. It is a cry for someone to come and rescue you, and the good news is that he has, he will, when you call on his name and admit that you can't do it. So as we seek to share the gospel with those around us, we must be patient with them. we got to be patient with them as we seek to help them understand this This need of humility, the need to cry out to God. Because admitting that and understanding that, even coming to the point of understanding that, is going to be humiliating. It hurts us. It hurts our pride. We don't want to admit that we can't do something. But I think over time, if we're gentle, as Peter reminded us to be, if we're respectful, as he tells us to be, if we're patient, If we have good dialogue and respect them, even though we may disagree with them, we can help them understand and see the point that we must cry out to God because we cannot save ourselves. So, we must talk to people, to non-Christians about what it means to become a Christian. But then we also are probably going to have moments where we need to talk about what it means to be a Christian. In other words, after you Accept Jesus and trust him to be your Lord and Savior. What is that going to look like? What is the Christian life really about? So that's the second point I want us to talk about today and the final point. Being a Christian. Being a Christian, A, means you are secure in Christ's love forever. Being a Christian means you are secure in Christ's love forever. That's what people need to know that the Christian life is really about. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the rest, the rest of Christ means you are secure. Once you trust Christ as your Savior, God adopts you into his family, and nothing can ever change that. Not even your performance. It wasn't your performance before, and it's not going to be your performance after. Because you are his forever. You've been bought with a price. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one, nothing, no one, not even yourself, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is no snatching your soul. You are secure in Christ forever. If you have turned from this mindset of thinking that somehow you could climb the mountain and you have fallen at the feet of Jesus and said, Please come down the mountain. Save me, Lord. I am drowning. I am dead without you. Save me, Lord. From that moment and forever on, you are secure Your future is secure. No matter what keeps you up at night in this earth, in this world, no matter what it is that you have anxiety about, that you fear about tomorrow, there will always be the truth undergirding everything else that you are secure. Your future is going to be just fine for all eternity. We may lack the love of others, but we will never lack the love of God. We belong to him. We belong to Jesus. We are secure in his love forever. And that brings us to our final point. Being a Christian, B, means God transforms your entire life by his love. So I think as we're talking to people about what it actually means to be a Christian, we want them to understand that we're secure in Christ's love. And so that changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. It changes our entire life lives what people must understand about being a christian is that it's not a checklist of things like i said it's not the checklist didn't get you here and the checklist is not going to sustain you either just throw the checklist away and you don't have to you don't have you don't have one in in the moment now of this list where oh here's all these commands i must obey but now let me be clear Are there commands in the New Testament that we should obey? Absolutely. Is this contradictory? No. You see, the reason the Christian obeys God's commands now is in response to his love, not to get his love. It's out of gratitude. The reason that we obey Jesus and we look in the Scriptures and follow what they say, why do we do that? Because we want to love God. We want to please him out of the gratitude and the thankfulness Of what he's already done for us. That's exactly what Hebrews 12 is talking about. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So, the reason we give our lives to the Lord in obedience after we become a Christian is because of this we're grateful. We're grateful that we've received something that cannot be shaken. So on our darkest days, in our darkest moments, we remember the gospel. We come back to the truth that we have been given something that cannot be shaken. The rest of your world may be shaking around you. The ground you're standing on on this earth may be trembling and your life may be crumbling in different ways or different seasons of life. But all along, we stand firm on the truth that no, we belong to a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so when you begin to meditate on this truth, the more more that we really take time to study God's Word and meditate on this great gospel truth, what Jesus has done for you, the more grateful we become. And therefore, the more you love God. Listen, maybe you've struggled before and thought, you know, I just don't know how to love God more. I wish I loved God more, but I don't even know how. I don't know where to begin. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the cross. Focus your heart and your mind on the scriptures about what Jesus has already done for you. Are you really are you really are you really doing that? Are you really taking the time to just process that, to digest it mentally, emotionally, psychologically? Are you meditating on the word of God in the still moments of your day so that you can you can be grateful. You're not going to be grateful for something unless you really take time to think about it. That's true in your marriage, that's true true with your kids, it's true with anything, your work If you just start getting in the routines of life and just accomplish a bunch of tasks every day and, and you just bypass the still, quiet moments with the Lord, you're not gonna grow in gratitude. Make time to do that. We must, that's how we grow in our love for the Lord. The more that we truly love Him, the more we will want to obey Him. That's where the life transformation happens. It's God's love. It's only his love that transforms us through the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. You no longer have to be driven by your anxieties and fears of losing something in this world. There are so many things in this world that we don't want to lose. Trust me. I don't want to lose a lot of things in this world. But at the end of the day, even, even if we lost something that we dearly love, we could still know, we could still know that our identity is built on something even greater. You no longer have to look to your social status or your money or count how many friends you have. You no longer have to define yourself by these things. When we open the Scriptures and we come to God in prayer, the Gospel works itself deep into our hearts and it reorients our desires around Him. We begin to love the things that God loves. That's the Christian life. It's continual repentance. It's constantly turning away from our sins and the idols that cling so closely to our hearts. It's a continual turning to the gospel, reminding ourselves constantly through his word as the Holy Spirit works its truths deep into our heart. The Holy Spirit shows us how to love God. To quote Pastor J.D. Greer one more time, the gospel, he says, the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity the gospel is the pool itself. And so, as we dwell on it and think about it, then in response to that gift, we are moved to obey. Love for Him grows in response to His love for us. That's when our lives change. That's when we begin to love God more and love others. You see, the gospel, when we dwell on its greatness, it changes us in a way that we, we just cannot help but be changed. When we see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His humility, Him giving up the riches of heaven to put our interests before His own, when we see His example and what He's done, how could we not? How could we not love others in the same way? How could we not be moved to love others in the way that we've been loved? We don't you, you no longer, as a Christian, you no longer have to be manipulative to get your way. You no longer have to be dishonest or selfish because no one else and nothing else could possibly give you what Jesus has already given you. So the more you understand that and contemplate that, the more free you are to love other people because you don't need them to give you things. God has given you everything. I want to close today by reading a remarkable account in Acts chapter 2 of the first church. So when I say first church, what I mean is after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended back to heaven, he gave his disciples this commission to make disciples, to make more disciples, to go and spread his truth and his good news to the world. And as they began to do that, what we now know as the church was formed. It was Jesus's idea from the beginning that his people, the body of Christ, the family of God, would come together and live in a way that was quite remarkable compared to the rest of the world. This is what happened. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem to a crowd, and here's what the people responded. Now, when they heard this, he's preaching the gospel. So Peter's preaching the gospel, proclaiming Jesus' good news. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? We have heard this message that Jesus has given his life for us. He lost his so that we could find ours in him. What shall we do now, Peter? And Peter said to them, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn away from your sin, Peter says, and turn to Christ. And then look down at verse 42 and 47. This is what happened. Listen, we've used, you know, sometimes in the evangelical world in America, we use the word revival a lot, and and we pray for revival and all this stuff. And listen, let me tell you something. If you want to see a revival amongst the church today, you know where it's going to start? It's going to start with you, Walking across the hallway in your apartment building and making a friend who's not a Christian and sharing the love of Jesus with them. It's gonna start with you walking over to the next desk at your work and making a friend who's not a Christian and sharing the love of Jesus with them. It's not gonna happen by bringing in some great motivational speaker to this church. It's not gonna happen by turning on the television and just hoping that all the bad things in the world are wished away. It's gonna happen. By the followers of Jesus living in biblical community as they seek to love and obey and adore their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here, I'm telling you that because here's what happened. In Acts chapter 2, it did happen. Look at this, verse 42 through 47. And they, these new Christians, these new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were laying down their idols. They were saying, I don't need this. I don't need that. But this person is in need. And just like Jesus treated me and gave up the riches of heaven to serve me, I'm going to serve this person. I'm going to sell my possessions and help them. This is remarkable. This is almost crazy, we would say. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That was the first revival And that is how it happens. It's a gratitude that we have because we belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ that cannot be shaken. And so what does that do? When you really contemplate that, when you really meditate on that and you take time out of your day to be grateful and thankful for Jesus and what he's done, it transforms the way you think about yourself. You no longer need people to serve you. You look for ways to serve them. You no longer need this world to just wish it away and wish all the bad problems away. No, you engage with the world. You go to the hurting. You go to the lost. You go into the darkness and you be a light. That's what the first church did because they were so transformed by the power of God's love. Can we be that kind of people today? I mean, can we be this? Can we do that in the year 2023? What if people think we're crazy? What if people think that, man, that church, they're just too excited about Jesus, right? I mean, are we we nervous? What are we scared of? What are we afraid? What's holding us back from loving God and surrendering to his will completely? You see, if we're going to be a faithful witness to the non-Christians in our lives, what they need to see more than anything else is not even just these good talking points, of conversation. They need to see the revival of your own heart. They need to see a person who is not perfect and knows it, but loves Jesus and seeks to be obedient to his word and serves them and loves them like no one else could. So Christians, church, followers of Jesus here today, may we leave this place and serve. May we leave this place and love. May we leave this place and share the good news of Jesus Christ, what it really means to become one of his people, what it really means. May we show them what it really means to be one of his people with all the humility, gentleness, and respect in our hearts.